Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Let's open up to John chapter 8, verse 44. John chapter 8, verse 44. My printer at home was not working. And, uh... I'm too dumb to figure out how to work the printer in our office, and so I'll be doing most of this from the laptop, all right? John chapter 8, verse 44, and we've been doing a series, for those of you that are new this week, on the idea is killing sin's roots, okay? Trying to really fight sin at the deepest level of its root in our hearts, rather than fighting it more at the symptomatic level, where a lot of times we fight it and oftentimes lose the battle, um, and so... I'll do maybe a little review as we go here. But John chapter 8, verse 44, look at what the Lord Jesus says. You are of your father the devil. He's talking to the Pharisees, and this would apply really to all non-Christians. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Now just hang on to that phrase. He's the father of lies. So in one sense you could say every lie that has ever been told, ultimately you trace it back far enough and it goes back to Satan himself. He's the one that started this whole thing. Go ahead and flip to Genesis chapter 3. Okay? And, but while you're flipping there, I'm going to read a verse that we actually read last week. Uh, Revelation chapter 12 verse 9. Just listen to this as you turn to Genesis and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. Okay, so the serpent, devil, Satan, it's all the same person, who deceives the whole world. So again, that, that's the way he's described at the end of time. He is the one that has deceived the whole world. So, at times, he's deceived you and I, correct? All right. So, back to Genesis chapter 3. And, and here's kind of the, our one main point this morning that we're trying to drive home maybe a little bit more deeply. Satan's lies are rooted in reality. Satan's lies are rooted in reality. And I'll explain more of what I mean by that as we go. But have you... Okay, well, I won't make you do a show of hands of this one, okay? But I'm just going to assume that all of us at some point in our lives have told a lie, right? Okay, you may have to go way back in your life, but let's be honest, we've all told a lie at some point. So let's just hypothetically say uh, that you had a time in your life, we'll we'll go all the way back, pre-Christ, you're in high school, maybe you're a smoker, and your mom and your dad, they bust you, and they're like, you better never come in here smelling like cigarette smoke again, or we're taking the keys or something like that. And uh, so then you, you say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and you go out the next weekend, you smoke with all your friends. And uh, you come home, and you smell like a chimney, and they say to you, you know, I can't believe you've been smoking. Well, if you're a good liar, okay, what are you going to do? You're going to say, mom and dad, listen, I was not smoking. Uh, there's the lie, okay, because you were smoking. But you're like, I was hanging out with all my friends. I was actually trying to be a witness for Christ, okay? But, you know, they smoke. And, you know, secondhand smoke can get on your clothes. Now, what are you doing? You're rooting your lie in enough truth to make it plausible, right? Your parents are like, well, we do know the bums you hang out with. Uh, it, it's very likely that they do smoke. Uh, we do take you to Sunday school, so maybe you did have an inclination to be a witness. Uh, we understand how secondhand smoke works, so maybe that's plausible, and you get away with it. Okay, now, I'm not trying to promote lying this morning, but we're trying to talk about how the father of lies works, and he does the same thing. So look at what he does all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, when he's telling this first set of lies to tempt Adam and Eve into sin. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, refer back, just probably have to look on the page before this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Look at the name that God gave the tree. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, you see what Satan does here. Essentially, okay, I'm going to kind of give you the olden paraphrase. Satan says, hey, Adam and Eve, you know there is this tree over here that's named the knowledge of good and evil. Sounds to me like if you eat from that tree, you'll get some more knowledge. God has more knowledge than you. He must be holding some of the best knowledge back, some secret knowledge, some special knowledge. And there's even kind of a subtle implication. I've got that knowledge. God's got it. You've got it. You don't have it. You wish you had it. Okay? Now, if you think I'm crazy... Here's Matthew Henry. (laughs) To support this part of the temptation, he abuses the name given to this tree. He perverts the sense of it, as if this tree would give them a speculative notional knowledge of the natures, kinds, and originals of good and evil. And that's part of the way that he sucks them in. All right, everybody flip over, and and we're going to be done flipping in just a minute, okay? But flip over to 2 Corinthians, back to the New Testament for a minute. And all this is by way of introduction, all right? So in some sense, this is... Catch up for those that have not been here, but also launching us into where maybe we'll go a little deeper today. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll go to verse 3. This is a passage that probably many of us are familiar with. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, start in verse 3. Paul talking about his ministry. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Okay, so if you're a Christian, you're in a battle. But it's not a physical battle. We don't use tanks, okay? We're not punching people that we disagree with that are heretics. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, not physical, but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What kind of fortresses? We are destroying speculations. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The war that we're in is a war over truth and lies, over interpretation of facts. Okay? Dallas Willard said, Ideas are a primary stronghold of evil in the human self and society. Okay? A guy named John Mark Comer. Okay? Listen to what he says. All temptation is the appeal to believe a lie. To believe an illusion about reality. The devil's primary stratagem is deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires which are normalized in a sinful society. And then listen to this last phrase, because I'm going to come back to it. It's really important. The devil's lies aren't random, untrue facts with no emotional value. You understand what he means there? Let, let me give you an example. Uh, when, some, when my sons were much younger, it's amazing the kinds of things that young boys can care about and be passionate about and make fun of one another about. And at one point, one of my sons started making fun of the other son about, you have a big forehead. I mean, listen, I grew up, I used to make fun of people all the time. I got made fun of a lot. In all my years of making fun of people and being made fun, I've never heard anybody get picked on for their forehead. But for one reason, one of my sons decided, I'm going to pick on my brother about, you have a big-looking forehead. And it would really bother the other son. He'd be like, no, I don't, no. He'd try to, like, pull his hair down. To come. And I, you know, now, if, if one of my sons ever said to me, Dad, you have a big forehead, I'd be like, so? I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I don't even care. No, let me, let me, you said, what is this guy talking about? If, if any of you were in the early service, I was a part of a baptism this morning. And if I got up there, and let's just say the thought went through my head, you have a big, ugly forehead, and people are going to be laughing at you because you're big. I'd probably say, I don't care. I, 
I don't, I don't know if it's true, number one, and I don't care if it's true. But if the thought had gone through my head, you're going to forget this kid's name. You're going to say this kid's name wrong, and it's going to be really embarrassing. It's going to be hurtful to the family because, listen, you don't know how many times in a campus outreach staff training I've been introducing the new staff, and I botched somebody's name. And it's usually the sweet little girl, you know, that's like starts crying, and I feel like a moron. There's some emotional value to that lie. Does that make sense? It finds a landing ground more easily in my heart. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. Everybody flip over to Job chapter 1. We're going to look at Job chapter 1. We've been almost uh, exclusively thus far in this series in Genesis chapter 3. I guess we've only had two weeks. But we're going to go to Job chapter 1. And here's, the, here's one of the reasons that I want us to look at Job. The first thing is this. Um, it is where you get more information about Satan than you get anywhere else in the whole Bible. Okay? The most concentrated story about Satan actually comes in the book of Job. But then secondly, Job in many ways is a character that we can all relate to. I don't mean that we're as filthy rich as Job was. Okay? I mean this. When we read the story about Adam and Eve in the garden with a talking serpent, I think we're good, conservative, orthodox, southern believers, and we're like, I believe every word of the Bible is true. But let's be honest, I can't really relate to talking to a talking snake uh, in paradise. Never been there or done that. But what I love about Job is he seems to have a very normal life. He's a businessman. He's a family man. And through the vast majority of the book of Job, certainly the first two chapters, he has no inclination or idea of anything going on in the heavenlies. You understand what I mean? We're getting, it's almost like we're watching a movie. And it's like, here's what's happening on planet Earth. Here's what's happening in the throne room. We're getting the inside track. Job is clueless. Isn't that, we, isn't that how we often feel in our normal life? I know God's up there. I believe Satan's up there doing something. What exactly are they doing? I don't know. I have, I have broad ideas. But in the specifics, I don't know. So we can really identify. So three points for this morning, okay? Satan's wants. Satan's ways and Satan's weapons. And I'll talk more about what we mean about that as we get there. So the first one is Satan's wants. Okay, and Really, Satan's desires, Satan's goals. Why would you say Satan's wants? Because I was trying to have three W's, okay? Um, so, uh, Job chapter 1. I'm going to assume that most of us are fairly familiar with the story. We're not going to read every verse. Let's skip to Job chapter 1, starting verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around in it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Based on this text, what's the goal of Satan in people's lives? Make them turn from God to destroy them. But the end goal is to turn from God, to curse God. Here's, here's kind of my simplified bottom line way to say it. He wants to do whatever he can do to drive a wedge between God's people and God, between that intimacy. 
the, the marriage between God and his people, Satan wants to drive a wedge. And he really doesn't care how he does it, does it right? I mean, we read a quote from C.S. Lewis last week. God doesn't, I mean, Satan doesn't care if he can turn you into a materialist or a magician. He'll take any way he can to turn you off to God. Okay, now, here's John Knox, all right? I mean, you get extra points if you quote John Knox, all right, the father of <laughs> Scottish Presbyterianism. By what means Satan first drew mankind from the obedience of God, the Scripture does witness, namely, by pouring into their hearts that poison. What poison? Here it is. That God did not love them. And by affirming that by transgression of God's command, they might attain to felicity and joy, so that he calls them to seek life where God had pronounced death to be. So the first lie, the main lie that Satan ever told and he's still telling is God doesn't love you. God's not good. God's not trustworthy. God's not worthy of your praise and worship. You ought to curse God. You ought to be against God. You ought to see him as a competitor. And listen, this original lie has infected every single human being since then, except for one. And it forms a landing ground like a beachhead in our heart and mind. Okay, now... A lot of times we read this passage and we say, you know, but, but God is sovereign. Amen. I believe in God is sovereign. Satan had to ask for permission. Amen. That ought to give us a lot of comfort. Amen. But notice this. There's only two times that we have a specific thing like this in the Bible where Satan comes and asks God for permission. This is one. Anybody remember the other one? Peter. New Testament Peter. And both times, what was God's answer? Sure. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I heard John MacArthur preaching a sermon on the, on the Peter passage, and he said, you know, it was pretty funny. He said, Peter must have at first said, and you told him no, right, God? I mean, right, Jesus? Satan asked for permission to sift me, and you said no, right? I mean, thank you for praying that I'll be restored, but why couldn't you just said no? Derek Kidner, great Old Testament commentator, said, this is God's consistent practice. Think about even the Lord Jesus Christ right after his baptism. Right after his great affirmation, the Father speaks audibly. The Holy Spirit comes down in a physical manifestation. This is my son. What's the very next thing that the Holy Spirit does? Leads him into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted. God does not tempt us. He tests us. Experientially, what's the difference for us? Really hard to tell, isn't it? God wants his people to be tested to be tried, so that we can come out refined. But it is not a fun, enjoyable process. Okay. Um, so, that's what Satan is after. Now, what's his means? Or you might say, what's his ways? What are Satan's ways? Okay, Let's read um, Job. Let's start in chapter 1 again. Let's just pick up where we left off, verse 13. Now on the day, speaking of Job, when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep, and the servants consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. 
While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, there's two different phrases that are repeated multiple times in that little short passage. What are they? Yeah, the main one is, I alone have escaped to tell you. Anybody notice the other one? While he was still speaking. I mean, it's like this compounding interest. <laughs> one guy runs up, hey, this whole business of yours got wiped out. Everybody's dead. I alone got out to tell you. While he's finishing that sentence, <laughs> comes another one. Another one of your businesses totally wiped out. I alone. You see the theme? <laughs> Do you remember in Matthew chapter 4... When Jesus, or you can go to Luke chapter 4, when Satan was tempting Jesus and he said, here's the whole world, bow down and worship me and I'll give you everything. Satan, I mean, Jesus didn't say, no, you can't, you can't do that. He took it as a real legitimate temptation. Now, he resisted it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, even after the cross and the resurrection, still refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. Listen, we know the battle is won in Jesus, Right? I mean, the war is won, but the battle rages on. And we're slap dab in the middle of it. And God seems to delegate lots of power and authority to Satan to go after people, to hurt people. I mean, this should be incredibly sobering to us. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. I don't want the Sunday school answer. Do our best together here as a group for just a second to try to put yourself in Job's circumstances. You're a very godly person. You're a very prosperous person. And you love your family. All these big kids, grown up now, they're on their own. And literally in one day, not just one day, in a matter of really, it must have been seconds, four servants run up to you to basically say, all your businesses are gone. All your employees are gone except for the four of us. And oh, by the way, all your kids are dead. And literally, if you kind of understand some of the geography of this, it was like the attacks came from the north, the south, the east, and the west, and even heaven, right, with a tornado and lightning. In that moment, what would you feel like God was doing to you? How would you feel towards God? And there's enough people in here, you just kind of shout it out, and nobody will know who actually said that. <laughs> what would you feel? Punishment. He's punishing me. But you have to take it in the context of the faith of Job and, how, and the relationship with God versus today. It's a totally different deal. Because we, we have a concept of grace that I'm not sure they had then. It was more, um, yeah, I'm, I'm cursed for you. It's a little bit different. It is a little bit different. It's not totally different. But you're right. Job had it worse than we do. And yet he responds just right. Well, that's what I mean. It's a totally... His response is more remarkable. It it is absolutely more remarkable. The culture. Absolutely more remarkable. And we're going to come back to that at the end. Okay? But it would be hard to get there for us on this side of the cross with all the extra resources we have. It would have been harder for Job to get to the right place. But he did. We know the story. Now, now here, here's, here's where I'm trying to go, guys. And let me just say this. If, if, if we keep this at the level of mental, theoretical, 
scholarly, academic insight, that will be almost worthless in our life. Maybe you'll go pass a theology test and somehow give you an A+, and you can pat yourself on the back. What I'm after for myself, if nobody else is getting something out of this, I'm trying my best to get something else out of it. And for all of us is, how is Satan doing this to me in my life? And let me just give you one example. I'll give you more examples before we're done. But just one example. I know a young man, grew up, broken home. Had one of those dads that was like, I'll be there next weekend, son. I'm coming to your birthday. I'll be at all that. And he just almost never showed up. This guy, comes, young man, comes to Christ. But he always feels like God is going to let me down. God's not going to come through for me. God's not going to show up. No, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a family therapist to figure out where that came from, do you? That lie in his heart and mind has a lot of emotional value. This guy's super smart, super godly. <laughs> Decided he, he graduated, you know, was very involved in ministry, wanted to go get a theology PhD or doctorate or something. Started applying. And he's applying to all these big-time schools around the U.S. and Europe. The first one said no. You know, he, he's talking to me. He's like, man, I just, God's not going to come through for me. I'm not going to get accepted anywhere. I'm like, Brother, you applied to like one of the greatest schools in the world and your first choice told you no. Don't let that automatically start making you cast disparaging thoughts against God. But for him, he's thinking, this has been my experience. <clears throat> he gets into his second choice, right? Ought to be praising the Lord, right? And then he's like, oh, I mean, yes, I'm thankful, but I'm probably going to flunk. I'm probably not going to do good. Then he does really good his first year. Second, well, I guess I am going to get good grades and graduate, but I'll probably never be able to get a job. Gets out, gets a job. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I really like to publish a book. I don't think I'll ever be able to, though. I don't think it'll work. Then he publishes a book, right? But then, I'd really like to publish a second book. But it's like, it just keeps coming back. God's not going to come through for me. You understand what I'm saying? And listen, all of us have something like this in our life. That's not fair. God isn't fair. I'm getting a raw deal. Listen, listen. the more you believe in the sovereignty of God, which is a good thing, in some sense, the more you'll be tempted to believe some of this. Talking to a college student the other day. Grew up in a good PCA church. Good PCA church school. Going through some hard times right now in his life. And he's frustrated. He's venting. And I asked, I said, well, who are you mad at? He said, well, I'm not mad at anybody. Anybody, any of y'all ever made this comment? I'm just mad at the circumstances. <laughs> right? That kind of feels safe, right? I'm over here stewing in my anger, but I'm not mad at any person, so it didn't really count. I said, oh, you're mad at the circumstances? Yes. Well, who's in charge of those? Well, I guess maybe I'm mad at God. No, we don't like to say that kind of stuff because what he feels, listen, he says, I know that's wrong, I know I've got to repent, but what he feels in that moment is, all the hardship in my life, God's doing it to me. I'm getting a raw deal. And it makes it hard to trust God. Okay. Satan's insidious, guys. He doesn't play fair. He's not nice. He's not sweet. Remember what Jesus said. He's a murderer. He's a liar. 
He wants to wreak havoc in our lives. The third point, Satan's weapons. Satan's weapons. Job chapter 2, start in verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around in it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Now, Notice that phrase, he still holds fast his integrity. Maybe underline it if you underline in your Bible. Verse 4, Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he'll give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The goal is the same. It has remained unchanged. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a pot shred to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Now, it's likely, several commentators mention this, that when it says he sat among the ashes, that he went outside the city to the trash heap where they would burn all the trash because that's where the lepers hung out. They were the outcast, right? And especially a skin disease that was so obvious and seemed so contagious, was seen as the curse of God, the wrath of God, commonly accepted. So it's highly likely Job kind of goes out to the city. He's just miserable. Now, before I read the next verse, just pause. Don't answer this one out loud, okay? I'll I'll (coughs) volunteer myself. If God wanted to hurt you, or if Satan wanted to hurt you, and God wanted to allow Satan to hurt you, you in the main way what might he do to you and I don't know for you and I won't make you answer because it could be an awkward conversation later in the car going home but I'll answer for myself take my wife I love my kids a lot okay but if I have to choose I want my wife and you know for years I'd read this story and it would kind of bug why didn't I mean God said you could touch anything Satan seems to never touch his wife or did he Here's Matthew Poole. The devil spared his wife with the cruel intent to be the instrument of his temptations. Here's Matthew Henry. Satan provoked the best friend. Skillfully is the temptation managed by all the subtlety of the old serpent who is here playing the same game against Job that he played against our first parents. She was spared for this purpose, to be a troubler and tempter to him. Is this a guide to still be loved and blessed and served? Be your own deliverer by being your executioner and end your troubles by ending your life. Now, in light of that, let's look at verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. What's that sound like to you in verse 9? What Satan wanted. It sounds like what Satan wanted. And it sounds like she's almost mimicking the language of the heavenly courtroom, does she not? God had said, he still holds fast his integrity. And Satan said, but if you'll touch him personally, he'll curse you to his face. And then the wife comes and says, are you still holding fast your integrity? Stop it. Curse God and die. Listen, guys, I don't fully understand this, but the Bible makes it very clear that at some level, Satan is able to influence the thoughts of people. William Hendrickson, great Reformed commentator, says, the whisperings of Satan in our mind. 
right? Okay. Uh, here's John Gill, okay? great Baptist commentator. So Satan ordered it. He was speaking about the servants. He says, Satan put it into his mind to say. When Satan wanted to get at Adam, he went after Eve, started with her. Eve was used to influence Adam. When Satan wanted to get at Job, he used his wife. When Satan wanted to get at Jesus after the temptations in the wilderness had failed, when's the next really clear time we know that Jesus was tempted? Anybody remember that one? Matthew 16? Get behind me, Satan. Who is he talking to? His best buddy, Peter. Don't go to the cross. God forbid it. Terrible idea, Jesus. Jesus was wise enough to what was going on. Okay, Ananias and Sapphira. One of the things Peter said to them, and maybe he was remembering his own experience with Jesus. Why has God, why has Satan put it into your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Listen, Satan doesn't play fair, and oftentimes the words that are said to us by other people, Satan has enough power, he's got 6,000 plus years of experience to influence even those words the way they land on us. Now, as we said, Gary pointed out, Job responded really well the first time. Job's going to respond really well the second time. Mrs. Job did not respond so well, did she? But who wants to throw a stone at her? Right? I mean, put yourself in her shoes. All your wealth is gone. All your servants that you probably loved and cared for, all of them are dead except for four. All your babies, graveyard dead at the exact same time. And now your husband is so sick and terrorized and in pain, he's like an outcast. I don't think this is any kind of demonic uh, Filling. This is just her in a moment of venting, of rage, saying, I can't take it. Now, let's do a minute of application. All right. P- please, I-, I would uh, urge you, take some time this week and try to prayerfully think how is it that Satan specifically tries to lie to me, tempt me, whisper to me in my mind, God's not good. God's not worthy to be loved, worthy to be praised, worthy to be followed in a way that has emotional value. And let me say it this way. You know, I, I shared one story. I'll share more stories. Some of them are obvious. I mean, we had another young man uh, that we were trying to share the gospel with at Sanford years ago. And he's like, I don't believe in God. And he didn't grow up in the kind of community that you would think would produce atheists. But as we got to know him more, he's like, well, I never met my father. I know who my father is. He actually lives the street over. But he's never claimed me. He won't speak to me. He won't talk to me. Does that make his atheism valid? Of course not. That's not what I'm saying by a mile. It makes it a little bit more understandable, doesn't it? How can I believe in a heavenly father that's good and loving and wise when my human father is so wicked and evil and despicable? There's emotional value. Now, listen. Here's probably really important for a lot of us to hear, myself included. It doesn't have to be something terrible like an abusive dad. It can be something as small and simple and subtle as a Saturday afternoon and night where you're all by yourself and you're a little bored and you're a little tired and you're a little lonely and you just think, I don't like being bored. I don't think I deserve to be bored. I deserve to have fun in life. So maybe I'll drink a little too much tonight 
eat a little too much, maybe watch something a little too scandalous on TV, let my mind wander to places they shouldn't go. You understand what I'm saying? It can be real small and real subtle. How does Satan come after you? There is some sense in which just contentment with whatever God ordained is right is the best way to worship and trust him and express your faithfulness. <coughs> Jeremiah Burroughs, the great uh, Puritan, you worship God more by contentment than when you come to hear a sermon or spend half an hour in worship or an hour in prayer or when you come to receive the sacrament. Contentment is the soul's worship. To subject itself thus to God, in active obedience we worship God by doing what pleases God, but by passive obedience we do as well worship God by being pleased with what God does. Okay? Let me read one more story, one more quote, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay? Uh, not read one more story, just tell you one more story. I know a woman, again, and I, guys, I'm, 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 for the most part I'm trying to think of people that would be the kind of people that you would know and respect that would go to a church like this. <laughs> So this woman that I know, she's, she's worked with different ministries and churches, okay? Grew up in a pretty good family. Not perfect, right? Who did grow up in the perfect family? Great theology. She's taught a lot of great theology. She's pretty good at teaching it. But she had some hardships in her past that have made her very fearful, made her not trust God, kind of some fear that leads her to control. She feels like God's not in enough control, so I've got to be in control to make sure I don't get hurt again. You ever met somebody like that? Now, here's the thing. She's in a situation right now where some really hard stuff in her marriage. Been trying to do some marriage counseling with them. And, and listen, the guy's got plenty of sin too, right? There's always two sides to every story. But her probably big sin she's bringing to it is this fear leads to control, trying to control and manipulate her husband. And I hadn't met the man yet that wanted to be married to his mom, right? Just to control him all the time. Not going well. So... A lot of stuff I've said to the guy, but the main thing I've said to her is just do everything you can to, to not try to micromanage him. We're having a counseling appointment. We literally had just talked about 1 Peter 3, 7, which, I mean 3, 1 through 7, which talks a lot about women, submit, trust, don't try to control your husband with words. And then we get into talking about some practical stuff, and it's like she just starts going, trying to control. I can see what she's doing trying to pray. And at some point she's like, I know I'm being fearful. I know I'm trying to control, but and she just keeps, she can't stop herself. And why am I sharing this story? If we wait until we're already in the activity of sin, it's often too late to cut it off. You understand what I mean? It's like we're just going and it's really hard to stop at that point. Just, just like we tell the young teenagers that are dating, don't wait to set your purity convictions until you're in the back seat of the car at midnight on Friday night, right? Listen, it's the same way with any sin. If you try to catch it at more of the fruit level, you're probably a goner. But if you can catch it at the very small root where it first starts to come up, I'm feeling fearful and say, oh, I'm not going to live in fear. I'm going to trust the Lord. You have a much better chance of fighting it. Okay, here's John Piper. Hey. Sometimes these lies get into you when you were small. And the deception of sin began to layer themselves over, creating a pocket of almost impenetrable conviction that this must be so. I really can't be happy without blank. And the layers are so thick that if someone says, that's wrong, there's no touching it. It's so deep, it's so powerfully rooted under all the layers of uh, sin that deception has used. Okay, so um, 
how do we win? How do we fight back? Okay, I know this has been kind of heavy. Let's end on a high point because, praise the Lord, the Bible ends on a high point. Okay, go back to Job chapter 1, verse 21, when this first terrible, painful, wicked temptation came. Look at his response, verse 20, Job 1, 20. Then Job arose, he tore his robe, and he shaved his head. Listen, he, he grieved, he was sad, he mourned. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not supposed to be Stoics. And he fell to the ground and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So how do you fight this battle at the deepest root? (laughs) When you hear and feel these lies coming to you at circumstances, you go back to truth. You meditate on truth. You preach truth to yourself. You meditate. You sing truth. About three years ago, I did something to my back. A lot of pain. I mean, there were nights I couldn't sleep. And I have, I think, pretty dadgum good theology. But there was a real hard sense of God. Why are you doing this to me? Why won't you heal me? Why won't you fix me? Why won't you at least let me get a good night's sleep? And there's a song. I think it's by Shane and Shane. That's the version that I listen to, okay? But has this line. Even what the enemy means for evil. It's praising God. You turn it for our good. You turn it for our good and for your glory. Even in the valleys, you are faithful. You're working for my good. You're working for my good and for your glory. And man, I listened to that song probably 500 times over a year period. And it was one of my ways to say, I'm not going to get mad at God. I'm not going to doubt God. Even though I'm really tempted to, I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to love Him. I'm going to praise Him. Now, Satan is defeated by an innocent sufferer. He lost these first two rounds against Job, right? Because Job suffered, and at the human level at least, he stayed innocent. He didn't curse God. He didn't sin against God with his mouth. When we suffer and we say, I still love God, I still trust God, I still worship God, I still praise God, I still rest in God, we defeat Satan in a small and tiny way, a partial way. But the full and the final and the ultimate defeat of Satan is when the greater and the truer Job, the Lord Jesus Christ, went to the cross. I mean, he went to the ash heap of history, not just cast out of the city, cast out of the presence of his Father in our place for all our sin, all our doubt, all our arrogance. And he was crucified for it, dead, buried, and raised. We look to him, we trust in him, and just like Gary was saying earlier, Job did well in those first two chapters, and he had so much less resources than we do. We've got the cross. So when it seems like all of our present circumstances are saying to us, God's not good, God's not wise, God's not loving, God's not trustworthy, we got to say, maybe everything in my life is saying that right now, in my family, in my business. But what the cross says is, no, no, God is the most loving, the most wise, the most powerful, the most good, and he's fully worthy of my worship. Lord Jesus, help us understand, help us believe, help us practice. Help us worship when you're giving and when you're taking away. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. 